Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where we share our latest insights on recent developments in politics and policy in the UK, Europe and internationally. Hello, this is Tom White in Global Council's Brussels office. Um, I'm joined here by my colleagues Daniel Caparelli, our practice lead for trade policy, and Stephen Adams, our senior director. Now, of course, this week has been dominated in the media by the visit of Donald Trump to Europe and, of course, by some of the steps that the United States has taken recently in the area of uh, trade policy. Um, We certainly see an escalation in many respects of what's become described as the trade war, um, which has been fought on many fronts, actually, between the United States and Mexico and China, Canada and even the European Union. So what we're going to do over the next uh, 20 minutes or so is just talk through some of the drivers of that um, agenda, um, where there might be um, elements of that agenda that are shared in Europe as we look ahead to the next policy cycle, as well as some of the specific options that are available to EU policymakers and how they might take shape over the next few months. Um, Perhaps, Stephen, I'll start with you and just ask, um, when we look at the way in which President Trump's administration has shaken up the trade policy architecture, how much of that is to do with him and his administration, and how much of it is to do with the structural changes in our economy? Oh, well, it would be it would be foolish to suggest that Trump and the Trump administration hadn't radically changed the way that US trade policy is made and implemented. That's, that's, that's clear. But there is still nevertheless a very real sense in which he's a symptom, I think, of, um, uh, of, of a series of uh, themes and trends and underlying tensions in US trade policy, which have been there for a, for a long time. Um, and I think they... Um, they stretch back to the middle of the last decade and to a degree of growing U.S. concern about China and the competitive challenge posed by China, to a concern about the capacity of the WTO and the WTO machinery to drive um, multilateral liberalization and to lock China into a series of disciplines of the role of the state in its economy and uh, its, uh, in, its interaction with the rest of the global trading system. There's been a long-standing um, strain of scepticism in U.S. domestic politics about trade. I think arguably NAFTA is potentially one of the least loved trade agreements ever signed. If you get down below the Washington strata and you, uh, you think about the way that it's been used uh, in domestic politics. Uh, of course, Obama was elected in 2008 as a NAFTA skeptic. He, of course, was um, was socialized in Washington to a, um, to a much more tolerant view um, uh, of, of NAFTA and probably of trade more generally. Um, but the fact that he spent most of his life as a politician campaigning uh, in a skeptical mode about NAFTA is a reminder that there's long been this um, latent anxiety in the U.S. system about um, the impacts of globalization on the U.S. manufacturing base, the impacts of globalization and regionalization in North America on American jobs, structural change that it's imposed on the U.S. economy. And in many ways, Trump is that latent tension coming to the surface. Um, but of course, it's the way in which he's come to the surface, which matters for us in this context, because he has imposed a set of radical changes on U.S. trade policy, reaching back for a pre-2008 
WTO toolkit, um, uh, pieces of US essentially Cold War legislation, which gave the president um, very strong unilateral powers to uh, impose tariffs on imports, to take extraordinary action, uh, to protect US national security interests or other economic interests. And um, he's used those in a way, I think, that has surprised even those who have thought that the US was drifting in a more trade-sceptic um, direction. And that, of course, is everybody's problem. Um, there's no sense in which uh, the US's choices aren't everybody's problem when it comes to trade. And, of course, we see in Europe um, many of the similar economic and societal changes that have driven that trend in the United States, as well as the emergence over the last few years of politicians who've been explicitly compared to Donald Trump by their ability to um, reach across between left and right. Um, I mean, we've been here today um, hold, holding an event with uh, people from the European Commission and some of the member states looking at the um, tensions and some of the differences that have developed between the US and the EU. But Daniel, perhaps I could come to you and ask, you know, are there elements of um, Trump's trade agenda where his diagnosis is actually shared by policymakers in Brussels? Um, yes, Tom, um, there are. Um, but these are usually uh, uh, and mostly focused on the on Trump's diagnostic of the challenges that China presents for the global system and how uh, uh, to integrate or better integrate uh, the Chinese economic model uh, under the multilateral trading system. Where there isn't a shared consensus in the EU on Trump's view is uh, on his um, uh, inclination to uh, move outside multilateral rules in order to address these challenges. In, in the EU, uh, even though this may not be shared by all structures of the uh, society, the political and policy-making class still believes that uh, the multilateral order needs to be protected and, and supported, even if it needs to be reformed to address these challenges. But nevertheless, uh, there is a sense that whatever path is taken to address these challenges, uh, 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 where there is agreement between the Trump view and 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 the EU's, it needs to be done according uh, to the rules of the multilateral trading system. And where these are not n sufficient, it is about changing from within and reforming from within to make them more fit for purpose to ad address these challenges. I think, at the risk of oversimplifying, this is the fundamental difference between the EU and the US approach at the moment. The the, the EU has, all, I mean. For, for you know, much of the last two or three decades, the EU's view on the governance of the global trading system has been that fundamentally, if you put the rule of law at the centre of the system, if you create institutions that can ultimately arbitrate and enforce or encourage the um, encourage compliance with that law, then that's the best way of managing uncertainty. It's the best way of managing asymmetry. It's the best way of ensuring openness and. The U.S. has just increasingly, and as Daniel said, I don't think there's any likelihood that the EU will drift away from that. And I suspect, if anything, we'll see it doubling down, as it has doubled down since 2008 when the Doha round stalled. It's, it's consistently doubled down on the argument that ultimately um, you know, a, a, a law-based multilateral structure is the best way to handle almost any problem. The U.S.'s view 
increasingly has been a very different one, which is that in fact it's the it's the structures of the multilateral system that are the problem for the US, and they're fundamentally a problem because they tie the US's hands. And what that creates is a lack of leverage. And if you had to put one word, one label on Trump's trade policy fundamentally, it's about trying to restore US leverage with China, with Canada, with Mexico, with the EU. Um, it, it may be clumsy, it's clearly in many cases outside of uh, the, the perimeter of the WTO rulebook, but as a strategy, its aim is to explicitly um, recreate the leverage that US policymakers feel the multilateral system deprives them of and to seek to resolve, to resolve problems on that basis outside of the WTO perimeter if necessary. Well, I think it, that's a very interesting way of looking at it because certainly our colleagues in London um, have been telling us for uh, the last couple of years that the EU has, has enjoyed considerable leverage with the United Kingdom throughout the Brexit process. Um, so although you can understand the frustration that you're describing on the US side of being tied into the system, the EU is not without options and it has managed to secure trade agreements with other countries over the last few years with some success. I mean, what, what would you say are their options um, on the EU side, even if they do decide to constrain themselves by sticking within the current multinational, multilateral setup? Oh, well, I mean, in principle, there's a range of ways that the EU can respond to US unilateralism without stepping outside of the WTO framework. Uh, the WTO framework includes, um, you know, contingent measures for responding to breaches of WTO rules by other members. It provides the EU with a suite of options for responding to US unilateralism, chiefly through proportional retaliation. The, the problem for the EU isn't necessarily that those tools aren't available. It's building a domestic consensus for using them. Because the, the unique feature, if you like, of, um, of, uh, uh, of deterrence in trade policy tends to be, or, or, or retaliation for the unilateralism of a, of, a, of a trading partner, tends to involve an element of self-harm for you, because it tends to involve re-erecting tariff or market access barriers. And you know we see this in the way the EU struggles at times with its own trade defence system, and we've seen it in the attempt to build a strong uh, coalition domestically behind um, deterrent measures for US steel and car tariffs because of course essentially what you're asking EU consumers and EU businesses to do is to accept a measure of short-term pain in order to build a coalition that can force the US to change policy and I think that you know one of the things we heard from various people today in the you know in our working session was the need in the next EU policy cycle to keep thinking about whether the EU's toolkit of deterrent measures is adequate and the need to get more comfortable in Brussels and in member, member state capitals with the idea that we, the EU may be forced to take painful decisions to implement hard-edged deterrent or retaliatory measures. And that sounds very convincing. The problem is you've got to ask the question, well, are we going to be able to maintain a domestic constituency behind that tough action? And that seems to me to be a big unknown. And if you, if you had to look back through the last 15 years of trying to build year after year coalitions to, to hold the line on trade defence measures with China, for example, um, 
it's never been something that the EU has found especially easy. And it's got harder the more EU exposure to China has grown. And clearly, you know, the, the, the US is the EU's, you know, one of the EU's two largest external trading partners. Um, EU business are always going to be uncomfortable with tough talk on retaliation or tough talk on deterrence measures. But at the same time, they don't want to see the US go unchecked if it's going to walk down the road of unilateralism. I think that the key, I think that Stephen is quite right. I think that the, the key challenge for the EU is to um, be able to build a constituency that has a, um, um, a, a long-term view. So right, you know, as Stephen mentioned, its past approach uh, uh, in dealing with China was essentially a fragmented one uh, because of short-term considerations in terms of economic pain in actually following through with trade defense mechanisms against China. And the key challenge here is actually to be serious and credible about your intention to use retaliatory tools uh, in a way that supports actually a long-term strategy in engaging with the U.S. I mean, the the, the president of the commission put it uh, in a very pointed way last year when he said, you know, the, EU, the US needs to remember that the EU can do stupid too. Um, and that really is the nub of the problem. Uh, you know, the, the, these kinds of retaliatory measures come with a domestic cost. They are stupid in many respects. And yet, if you're going to deflect the US from its own unilateralism, at some level, you have to get comfortable with stupid. I think we've also seen, when you mentioned President Juncker, over the last year, he's also tried to adopt an approach of carrot and stick, offering certain areas of a positive agenda towards the United States alongside those particular threats around individual tariff lines. Would you say that the EU's positive agenda is a, is a serious one or is it purely around a sort of a, a communications agenda um, for the public? I think that the, at a level of substance... Uh, the EU agenda is a serious one. So the positive agenda of focusing on um, removing the regulatory irritants on EU-US trade is a serious one. Uh, I think that the challenge that um, the EU will face is that uh, for the Trump administration, uh, this is not something that they can recycle easily into simple concepts of benefits that the U.S. is extracting to the EU to the Trump electoral base. And this is going to be the challenge. The moment that you stop talking about regulatory equivalents, uh, it's not something that you can sell on the campaign trail. And this is the, the tricky part. Uh, uh, Trump is looking for easily saleable wins. Uh, and in, in the current environment, I don't see um, negotiations between the EU and the U.S. achieving that. Actually, that question of the timetable is a very important one. And of course, in the United States, people are looking ahead to another presidential election next year. But here in Europe, we also have more immediately a significant transition to a new European Parliament over the next six weeks and a new European Commission over the next few months. And I know that when we've been mapping the uh, incoming administrations um, in various areas of policy, it does look as though we will see a slightly greater bias towards um, producer interests in the EU side. Um, we'll see probably a greater cohort of uh, trade sceptics in the European Parliament. 
both coming from nationalists who would um, buy into a lot of Donald Trump's analysis of the more um, need for a more aggressive trade policy, but also um, a greater cohort of Green Party MEPs who are traditionally sceptical about the way in which trade agreements can be perceived to undermine environmental or other standards. And of course, we've seen a, a diminishment of the influence of um, the Liberals in the German um, delegation to the European Parliament, as well as the reality that one of the greater champions of um, ambitious trade policy in the United Kingdom has essentially become absent from this debate. Um, I, th I think also when we look ahead at the next Commission, there will be a, um, an important set of pressures on the new President to take forward some of the messaging that Emmanuel Macron has developed in France about uh, needing to show that Europe can protect, that Europe is there to be more assertive, that it wants to have not just um, a role as a regulator of the world's new technologies, but to be um, at the cutting edge of those and where needed to assert its own sovereignty um, over those sectors. And of course, this combines with a growing sense in Germany that there has been a um, potentially uh, dangerous loss of um, keeping up with the development of new technologies among um, in the United States and in China in sectors that have traditionally been Europe's strengths, um, whether we're talking about um, advanced engineering and manufacturing or, or the automotive sector. So we're certainly in a period of transition um, in Europe over the next few, uh, few months. But I wonder if we were to think about the specific options that are available to the, the incoming Trade Commissioner. I mean, Stephen, you, you advised um, a couple of uh, their predecessors. What would you see as the specific tools that they could try to deploy immediately? Well, I mean, I think, um, I think there's no question that the incoming Trade Commissioner is going to find uh, herself or himself under pressure to show um, what it means to have a trade policy that protects. I think that political language, I mean, maybe that may be political language, but, but language matters. I think the other piece of political language that's going to matter is, and this is language that Macron has, uh, has deployed quite comfortably, which is the language of reciprocity. And I think that one of the consequences of those things is going to be a search for um, or a, a focus on those elements of the EU's trade policy toolkit, which are essentially designed to either enforce reciprocity or protect the EU from perceived unfair trade. So I think that means uh, you know, a, a renewed focus on, on the trade defence system, on the anti-dumping and anti-subsidy instruments. I think it means um, a, a push to get the, um, the, the, uh, the international procurement instrument, which is a, you know, has been a recurring theme every, every time the debate about reciprocity in international procurement markets has, has kind of risen to the surface in Brussels. Um, this idea has been there with it. This, it now looks like a really serious proposition, I think, for the next policy cycle. And of course, we're also seeing um, uh, a fairly material shift in, um, in the way that EU, individual EU member states and the EU itself thinks about things like investment screening and, and the need for um, clearer protocols for the screening of inward investment from, from China chiefly, although, although uh, it's, it's really labelled that way. And I think we need to think about um, what the counterpart of some of that um, focus on investment screening might be in terms of things like export controls for sensitive advanced technologies. Um, so I mean, I think you know, if we if we take as our kind of our, our rubric the, the the concept of protection and the concept of reciprocity, 
I think those are going to be two boxes that policymakers, both in the Parliament and the Commission and the Council, are going to be wanting to try and populate. I mean, one of the elements of the Trump language that we've not touched on is the concept of, of making a deal. Um, and of course, there are a number of balls in the air at the moment in the world of trade, most notably the idea of a new agreement between the EU and the US. And we've, um, of course, had a had a mandate from the European Council for the European Commission to uh, explore an agreement with the United States. What, what sort of prospects and what sort of chances do we give that initiative? Uh, well, uh, the, the problem has always been that the Trump administration's approach has broadly been to keep the, the scope of that uh, agreement, both potential agreement, both as um, uh, narrow as possible and focused chiefly on the areas of US interest. And that um, that means goods trade and it means agriculture from the US point of view. The problem from the EU point of view, of course, is that that looks like a very unbalanced negotiation. It includes a key EU defensive interest in the form of agriculture and it leaves out many of the things that the EU has traditionally wanted from a, uh, a comprehensive negotiation with the US access to US state-level public procurement markets, disciplines on things like Buy America protocols, better protection for EU geographic indications, you know, all, all things that people who followed uh, the TTIP negotiation uh, will be familiar with. And the Trump administration is, broadly speaking, um, uh, you know, said that it's not willing to put those things on the table, and it does expect to get a bite of the cherry on EU agriculture. And one of the consequences, of course, of that slightly shaky beginning to the negotiation is that the domestic constituency in the EU looks very, very shaky. Um, it's not at all clear uh, that despite the mandate, um, there is a deeper mandate, if you like, uh, the, you know, the kind of mandate that allows you to bring in a, a, a deal back home confident that it will sail through ratification. Um, and I think that means we need to be, um, we, we, need, we, we need to watch the, the negotiation very closely because it's not clear to me yet that we know where a possible landing zone is. And it's not clear to me yet that uh, the um, stakeholders in the US and the EU agree on what needs to be part of uh, a final package. And while that's the case, it's just not clear how you close this particular deal. The problem, of course, for the EU is that it's also, quite uniquely in many respects, it's negotiating under duress. It's negotiating under the threat of um, uh, a possible tariff on EU automobiles um, under the, the US's um, 232 legislation. And that's a particularly uncomfortable place for the EU to find itself, um, essentially forced into a negotiation um, with which it has a big problem with the scope that the US is trying to impose on it. So I think this is going to be a real headache uh, for an incoming commissioner and for an incoming commission president. Um, because it's, as I say, it's not, it's not clear how you um, untangle that, that knot. Well, and so as we look at this um, forthcoming continuation of these tensions between the three giants of the, the EU, the US and China, it's clear that this is very far removed from the traditional view of trade policy negotiations as a technocratic um, long burn process. Um, it's clearly something that's actually also going to test the different political systems of those three powers as well. Um, I'd like to say thank you very much to Stephen and to Daniel for joining us here in Brussels today. Um, and uh, thanks to everyone for listening. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.co.uk and subscribe to our mailing list. 
You can also follow us on Twitter at global underscore council. Thank you.